Welcome to In Season, where we explore the connections between people, land, plants, and wildlife here in the lower Columbia Pacific region. I'm Teresa Retzloff, and I'm really excited because today I'm doing this show live. It's been a long time, so I'm back in the KMUN studio. And one of the cool things about this is that I get to talk to KMUN program director, Emma Geddes. Hi, Emma. Hello. Turn <laughs> I was that mic- I was in clarity yet. <laughs> Turn that microphone on. And what we want to talk about today, we did a really cool experiment together this year. Uh, people have many facets to their lives, and if you just know Emma as program director here at KMUN, you don't realize that she has another whole life that she's exploring as a fiber artist and a weaver. And she approached me um, early this w- this winter, I think, and asked if it would be possible for her to grow a crop of flax on my farm this year. Did I have some bed space? She was curious about it. She wanted to try and do the whole process of growing this crop. And flax, if you don't know this, is a plant that is used to make linen, like linen thread that you would then weave into fabric. So if you own a linen dress, a linen pair of pants, a linen shirt, that fabric, that thread comes from the plant known as flax. And I had some bed space that I could give up for that, and I was curious about it. And so I said, sure, let's do this. And it was pretty cool. So, Emma, tell us about flax as a plant, um, what, how you learned about it, how you got curious about it, and what made you want to do this. Yeah, well, for one thing, like you said, with many lives, I think I was desperate to find a thing to do that wasn't looking at a computer screen. (laughs) Um, But, you know, as all great love stories start, uh, it started on the Internet. And (laughs) um, I was, as we all were, spending a lot of time on social media throughout the pandemic and stumbled into some really interesting people who were trying to bring back flax to the U.S. as a as an industry um, because it left pretty dramatically after World War II um, when the demand went down and it just kind of never really regained any popularity here. So most of the little linen that you do buy now is uh, from flax grown in Europe. I think Eastern Europe is a, is a large region for that. Um, but we can grow it here and we just don't. And it's, I thought that was really interesting and was learning to weave at the time And it just became this rabbit hole (laughs) that I kept going further down. Um, And yeah, this, thank you for the opportunity to do this because it's, it's not, I grew a little bit in my backyard last year, but that was a very different thing than growing 400 square feet of it to see what would happen. Um, And so, yeah, it's the, so flax, obviously people think of flaxseed probably most commonly because it's the thing you come come across pretty regularly. It's the same plant, but it's a cultivar. So you cultivate for seed by growing a short branched version of the plant because it produces more seed, or you grow a tall skinny version that creates this long fiber. And it's a very strong fiber and you essentially pull the full plant out because the fibers extend through to the roots. Um, And so it's, it's the same thing. We just pushed it in a little bit different direction so if you so when you go to the store if you if you incorporate flax seed meal into your diet I think it's it's one of the omegas that you get from it right yeah I think so I I I just know it's it's like (laughs) it's good for you flax seed I see it at the store um sometimes I use it and um so that is it's not that it's a different plant completely it's just like a different cultivar of it Mm -hmm. um so that that wouldn't 
be the same thing? And it, it would that be the same plant? So this is also what's fascinating to me, b- making these connections, because flax is also known as linseed. Mm-hmm. And linseed, linseed oil, is something, so you would take, you would grow it for the seed again. So I'm assuming it's the plant that you grow for the seed. And you um, can make it, crush that and make an oil out of it. So linseed oil is probably familiar. Well, certainly if you've done any art in your life, if you've ever done any oil painting, linseed oil is used a lot in, in painting. But also like if you finish wood floors or work with wood at all, it's something that's often used as a, as a wood conditioner. Um, ironically, and I know it's, a, it's um, an animal feed, linseed can be used as an animal feed, but also for me as a farmer, um, I make my own fertilizer, and I, for a long time, linseed meal, like ground up linseed, that was that was a byproduct of the linseed oil industry. So the crushed remnants of the linseeds after they'd been crushed for oil was sold as like a nitrogen source for fertilizers. And so it's, I mean, it is a fascinating plant, and I love plants where you can use every single piece of it. Like all of it is productive. You were telling me you could make paper out of. Yeah, so that's Flax another thing that, that a lot of people trying to bring it back are really trying to emphasize is that this can be an extremely low-waste process because if you're growing it for the fiber, you're scraping away this core uh, to get the fibers that are attached to the outside of it. That scraped-away core can be turned into paper, like you said. You can make a pulp out of it. Yeah. And- and wow. it's just like this really beautiful, similar to like cotton paper is sought after for art in particular. Um, it can be a similar thing. And so every piece of that, if you're processing it in a certain way, can be very low waste and very sustainable. And it it grows almost on its own. <laughs> it's it can become kind of weedy. I have noticed um, it popping up in different parts of my <laughs> farm now. I mean, and this is a crop that we just grew. So I think we you sowed the seeds in May. I yes. think it was it was it was tricky. So this year was complicated because we had complicated weather, um, which seems to be the norm these days. And it was a very wet spring kind of wet and cold spring until early May when it just like like someone turned off the tap and it just stopped raining completely. So it took a little while for the soil to dry out and be ready in the space where I was giving over to Emma to grow this crop. So it, it so I think it was probably more like mid-May, mid to late May, maybe when you got it actually planted. Mm-hmm. I would say ideal conditions probably I would want to plant it earlier if we were really going for, you know, good germination and a really healthy stand because you did have to water it maybe mm-hmm. more than you might have had to. Yeah, germination was tricky and then a lot most of that was brand new user error really for me <laughs> it was I don't blame the plant but yeah, it ideally you're planting it when the ground is still a little bit wet and it's it you keep the ground a little bit wet while it germinates and then it becomes very hands off. You let it grow. It's a 90-day crop. Um a little bit longer if you're growing for seed, but yeah, then theoretically it just grows and <laughs> well and it had a pretty deep taproot and that's mm-hmm. what's so fascinating to me and I, I'm I I know that I've talked about this in the past on the show and for those of you who don't know one of my rabbit hole obsession things that I've gotten into in the last decade that I've been farming is I do a lot of dry farming so that's growing crops without additional irrigation summer irrigation so you establish the crop in the in the late early spring sorry um like between like late April and mid-May usually when there's still a lot of moisture up at the soil surface and then you don't ever water that crop again you grow it without irrigation and you encourage the plant to send its roots deep into the soil 
So you do have to have a kind of soil profile where um, there is still moisture present in the soil deep down. So unfortunately for some of our listeners, like sandy soil is not a good um, candidate for this. Um, Super rocky soil that drains really well is not good. But heavier soils, clay soils, which a lot of people complain about, but a lot of those are actually better for this kind of thing. So so the site that I had was actually ideal for this because there it do, our soil does hold moisture further down in the soil. So it was really ideal for Emma's flax crop. Once it established, it was able to just send those roots down. And it took a little while for it to take off. I think we were both trying to learn about this. We were both like, oh, <laughs> is it doing it? Is it not? And I was really worried about it. I think you actually came back and reseeded, overseeded again. I did, yeah. About two weeks in, I could tell that it had, I think my watering technique was uh, to blame, but it had spread some of the seeds out leaving patches. And so I had a lot of extra seed, which was great, <laughs> and came back. And I think it did... A lot of that did germinate mm-hmm. eventually, um, but it filled out really nicely. I didn't end up having to thin anything. That's another thing that's I'm was interesting to watch. There were parts that were more thickly seeded than others, and there are differing opinions on the internet, of course, about this, but there's a certain amount of crowding that's really good for flax because it will they'll support each other and grow a little bit taller which is a little bit counterintuitive you'd think that they would stunt each other but it, there's a fine line there in finding that well some balance. plants do that it's the competition you mm-hmm. know and, and I think anyone who's like overseeded a crop you know if you've direct sown something the, the plants do they're all fighting to be number one they're all trying to outcompete each other and so yeah they do often get really tall and kind of spindly which, Again, for most crops, it's not what you want, um, but it turns out for flax, that's actually a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And they they get to about I'm trying to think. Toward the end, it was um, they were just under three feet tall. I mm-hmm. think at the tallest there was a range from like two feet to three feet. I think, um, but yeah. So and I will say this: it has the most beautiful blue flower. Oh, they do. This plant, it when it started blooming, and I think it startled me because I hadn't really gone back and checked on it. I had some beans growing right beyond it, and I had a, a crop of indigo, which was also an experimental plant for me this year that I was growing right next to the flax, which was kind of lovely because that's a dye plant, and you know, there's it's maybe some symbiotic. future dying. I don't know, but um, <laughs> so I was, I you know, I hadn't been back there to check for a while, so I went back to check, and all of a sudden it was just this this row of this most beautiful blue, this sky blue, and it was covered in bees. I mean, I, I, this is, I mean, if nothing else, if you want to throw some flax seeds around your garden, it bees loved it. It mm-hmm. was so attractive to them, and it just was gorgeous watching it kind of sway in the breeze. Yeah, there are these, just to describe, because I I love them. So there are these beautiful, you have this long, thin stalk with tiny, thin green leaves up the side. And then at the very top, you would get one or two blossoms. And they're just these, like, paper-thin, I think six-petal, very light, like, periwinkle blue almost flowers. And they're Mm. teeny tiny. And they, so I wrote a, a little summary of this 
experiment for um, someone who puts out an art magazine about plants. And in her editing, she I described the bees landing on this, and they would land in the center of it, and a big old bumblebee, and it completely weighs down the whole flower. <laughs> and so it was just this comical of them bouncing between them, and they would just look like little bells with the bees stuck in the middle. <laughs> and she, I described that, and she called it very Ghibli-esque. And I just, <laughs> I, I felt very seen, but it also just, that was the experience of growing this plant. Like, it just felt like you were in this. Ghibli animated field full of these little blue flowers. It was it was really beautiful. I mean, so so if you're just joining us, we're talking about I'm talking about growing flax, um, which is the plant that you use to make linen. It's also linseed or flax. meal. I mean, a, a cultivar of it is what the flaxseed you see in stores. You can make linseed oil, linseed meal out of it. So many uses for this plant. It's fascinating. And as a fiber plant, now I have heard that there there is there are people in Oregon or in the Pacific Northwest that are looking to bring back flax as a for making linen as part of this kind of localizing fabric industry again. But it is very labor intensive to mm-hmm. take this plant. And this is the part I also want to hear about from you because it's all one it's all one thing to grow the plant, and that's lovely. That's the but easy part. Then you take it and turning it into thread is seems like a lot of work (laughs) (laughs) it sure is I'm really excited for winter so yeah there's a particularly in Oregon there's an organization called Fiber Revolution uh, who is very actively trying to bring flax back primarily in the valley and part of that processing that makes it difficult is that the equipment grown or the equipment grown the equipment made specifically for the processing of flax and the harvesting of flax is no longer made in the states and so because we don't have an industry here and so they recently acquired some equipment from europe that was a big step toward doing what they're trying to do um and they're working with individual farmers who are uh incorporating this into their their harvests every year now. Um, And that project is also tied in with a nationwide effort by both fiber sheds. So there are regional fiber sheds that are focused on this as well as wool and natural dyes uh, that kind of focus on those climates that are more specific. that, are, that lend themselves to these kinds of crops. Yeah, and so focusing on each region's specific fiber shed and what does well there and what could be encouraged and funded to bring back more of that domestic textile production. Um, and so these were, and there's the North, North American Linen Association, which is also getting a lot of support now. It's NALA for short. Um, But all of these people are trying to work together to really get the word out about this as a viable industry. Um, And it's it's just interesting to see. I feel like COVID gave it a little more attention, interestingly, because people were so online and it spread that and looking for things to be obsessed about of Mm -hmm. which and this is how it caught you I mean and and this is how it caught me which is really fascinating because I would never have thought of this I mean I have friends we have a a dear a mutual friend between us Becky Tonkin who's um, part of Shift Wheeler she's a beautiful um, fabric artist makes phenomenal clothing uses a lot of linen and I've had conversations with her about linen and sourcing linen and you know, hearing from her about that there was this group of people trying to make linen here in the States again and how complicated that was, again, because the equipment wasn't there. And I can understand why 
the processing of linen was industrialized because hearing you talk about how you get you break down this plant and extract the fibrous bits out of it that you then still have to spin into thread doing that by hand i mean linen i'm assuming that prior to industrialization linen must have been an incredibly luxurious fabric um yeah there's a there's a lot of really interesting info about that out there um but yeah it's it was really respected, um, but also very humble at the same time. It was um, there were hermitages that focused on this. There still is. There's one back east, um, which is where I got my seeds. Um, but it, it was a. It's a very. It's a very hands-on process, and the even if you're making tools for this now, they're very primitive because it's kind of impossible to improve upon them. Um, that part has been very interesting to me. I'm just on the edge of starting the full processing. Um, should I get into that? <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, what, what do you have to do? So you so you have this plant, you harvested right. it, it's about three feet long, you know, the flowers have, have died, it's not mm-hmm. really set seed yet, yeah. but it's this, it's, you know, so now it's dried, right? You've dried it. Well, so, yeah, so once the bottom third of the plant turns yellow, that's when it's ready to harvest. Uh, and so you dry it, essentially, and then... You get it wet again <laughs> um, in a why, process called why? redding. So redding is a process that essentially ferments the core of the plant, and it breaks it down enough so that it's easy to break it and scrape it away. So you start with redding, and then you dry it again so it's ready to break. And I built this funny little giant wooden scissors, essentially, to break it, which is my next step. So you crimp it through that until the core is mostly broken away. And then you scutch, which is just scutch. Tra- just scraping. Yes, there's lots of fun words scutch. for this. Okay. So I scutching, traditionally you would have a large plank of wood and you would lay the broken flax against it and use another uh, sort of large wooden knife uh, to scrape to get the core out, leaving just the fibers. And then, and then it, the core is what you then take and make paper out of. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you want to save Are you going to make paper out of yours? I'm going to try. Okay. This is cool. <laughs> this is really cool. Um, so then once it's scutched, then you hackle it. So you... You have... hackle it? <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, so hackle, you basically have nails through a single piece of wood and um, they look like a comb. It's a similar to combing wool for, to get it ready to spin. Uh, and so you take like a ponytail of this flax and run it through the hackles until it separates all of the fibers and this is where this is the point when it looks like hair so if you've heard flax and hair it basically looks like this is that where that comes from Mm -hmm. yeah and it looks like blonde hair um and so i never knew that yeah um so then once you have that all hackled uh, you're ready to start spinning and you put it, you wrap it around something called a distaff, which just looks like this beautiful. So much good vocabulary in this. I just have to, st- I just, I love words and this I, is very yeah. exciting for me. Okay. So you, so you're wrapping it around a distaff. You wrap it around a distaff. looks like a dramatic wizard staff and you create this wig on top of it with the flax fibers. Uh, and then you pull from that to spin, uh, whether you're using a drop spindle or a wheel and yeah. And, I, and it, it, you spin it into a pretty fine thread. Uh, if you're skilled, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to make more of a rough linen, yeah, probably. I'm <laughs> trying to be realistic. I just started learning how to spin, and um, 
have only spun with wool so far. So I am really anxious to get to a point where I have this to start playing with. Uh, so my hope is to have enough rough, not cordage, but uh, yarn to weave a wall hanging. Um, anything more than that would be a gift, but we'll see. And this is the thing also that I was really struck by. Um, so, so you, we, it was about 400 square feet and it was a mm -hmm. hundred foot row, four foot wide that, sh that I, Emma sewed with flax seed in the spring, grew it over the season. You said it was about, about a 90 day mm -hmm. crop came out, harvested it. And she's been doing all this drying and weird soaking and <laughs> redding and you, you're not, you're not hackling it yet. No, you're not. There's something in between the hackling that and breaking. The break. yes. You haven't broken it yet. So, um, but having said that, for all of that, how much fabric do you actually get from that? I mean, it's like yeah. like a, like a uh, like a dish towel. So someone I wish I need to find their name again because it was such a cool project. But s someone I stumbled into online again uh, did a project to represent visually how much you would get out of it, and they grew enough flax for a t-shirt and I believe that the 400 square feet that we grew is roughly twice that so oh so we can make two t-shirts make two t-shirts one for you and one for me this yeah, is cool exactly <laughs> so we're well on our way but I mean that that is also really humbling to realize mm -hmm. then what it takes and it I mean for me I think it it makes me look at my my whatever linen clothing I have differently when I know, I mean, this comes from a plant, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I and I see how it started. I saw the seed. I saw the whole thing grow. So when I put on my linen dress from Shift, I'm like, this is this is a lot of linen in this. This is a lot of plants. It's gone through this process, and I I have more of an understanding and a connection to it and a respect for it. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. I mean, I can't wait to see you go through this whole process. Do you think you would ever do this again? Um, <laughs> or is it sort of a one and done? You're like, cool, I've done this, and now I now I know, and I don't yeah. need to do this again. I love the idea of doing it again. I think I'm I'm trying not to wrap myself too much into thinking about that just yet, because I think after this winter of processing, I'll have a better idea of how realistic it is that I would be able to use or be interested in using it <laughs> again if I grew another crop. Um, yeah, I think that that. That connection to the amount that it takes to me is really important too. Not because I think it's easy to hear that and be like, well, that's a lot of work for just a t shirt. But to me, it's like you said, it's that respect of the cloth and how much we are detached from those processes, not just with linen, but with any fiber and how much we consume with clothing and how long we keep our clothing and just that we should be thinking about that in every type of fiber and whatever we're using, that that takes so much labor and so much use of the earth and that <laughs> I, it really has changed a lot of how I think about my clothing. Um, and so I think that was, that was probably what propelled me into being this interested about this. I, I think that that's so fascinating. And, and that is, a connection certainly that I, I feel like I make every year over and over again, the longer that I grow plants, you know, either for food, for, you know, for flowers, for beauty, for processing, for drying, for whatever I, it comes out of that, you know, when you understand the labor and the work involved and the, the effort 
I mean, not that that's not a good thing to do, you know, and I and I do understand, you know, labor saving devices. I certainly use tools and I use some mechanical tools on my farm, too, and I'm grateful for them. But I think when you can respect that process, you're less likely to waste or take it for granted or just be like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, oh, yeah, I bought this whole big salad, but I'm not going to eat it. So I'm just going to throw it in the trash. You understand more. And I, I've seen that transformation, certainly in people that I know that have, you know, started a garden, you know, and maybe grown lettuce, grown carrots, grown whatever. And, and it's so much more precious to them because they grew it. And then you start to really understand what it takes to produce on a larger scale when you walk into a supermarket all of that food that's just sitting there in the produce department. And I think, you know, when I walk into a store now and I see like a rack of linen shirts or pants or dresses hanging there, I, I don't think I will ever not be able to think about you sowing those seeds and watering them and watching those plants grow and then hearing you talk about this process. It's, it's, it's transformed something in me in an awareness. And that's, I mean, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, I, I have felt that way about just being around your farm too. I see all of that production very differently. Um, and I think it's just very fun to be able to share that with people and hope that, hope that they see these industries a little <laughs> differently. <laughs> Absolutely. So if people, in, if people are listening to this and you're, and you've, it's piqued your curiosity, you want to know more about the flax, the, the burgeoning flax industry, potentially here in America, the fiber, the fiber projects you've been talking about, how can people find out about some of this stuff if they're interested in yeah. digging deeper um so the pacific northwest fiber shed has a great they're not a they're not very active right now but their website is still up and they have a lot of great history about flax in oregon in particular uh, and then they link to other resources like fiber revolution which is very active in oregon uh, nala the north american linen association has a lot of wonderful information out there for people who are interested in participating uh, either on the textile side or on the farming side. And then there's just, if you just look up growing flax, you're going to find <laughs> a lot of really great people who are doing this. There, the Pennsylvania Flax Project had a square yard project where they uh, would give seeds to anyone in the state who was interested in growing a square yard of flax. And then they collectively brought that together and created linen out of it at the end of the season. And so there's just all kinds of really interesting projects out there <laughs> it's fascinating and I I really love exploring this connection you know so often when we talk about farming people just immediately think about food and we don't think about all the other things that we consume that come from plants that come from farming that come from the ground and the connections that we make between them so I mean this has been a fascinating project for me I'm so glad that you approached me about it thank you and it's been really wonderful to watch this. I, I look forward to um, seeing the process as it goes on and watching you um, explore spinning and weaving and, and turning this plant into a, a physical object. I, I, that's ma I mean, it's, there's a magical thing to it. And yet when you break it all down into the parts, you realize it's, it's not magic. It's just skill. It's knowledge. Right. And skill and knowledge that we've lost. And now it's being rediscovered. That's so exciting. Yeah. Isn't magic always just <laughs> something we don't know how to explain? <laughs> well, yes, it is. I know. Um, and that's fascinating. Yeah. I know. So thank you. And this has been such a great conversation. Yeah. I'm really glad that we had this. And I, I hope that it inspires other people to think differently about the clothes that you've got on right now and to think about, 
you know, where does that come from? And, and what can we do here in our region, in our country, to be more self-sufficient in how we produce some of these things and how we value them? Because mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's a lot of it, too, is just valuing things more. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Well, well thank you oh. also for the opportunity. <laughs> I would not have been able to do this any other way. And so I'm very grateful. It's just been a wild year for me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I, you know, I certainly, um, I'm sure that, that Emma will be posting more about this and sharing more information and check out these resources if you're curious about it. I think it's a wonderful thing to explore and um, plants are amazing. Thank you for introducing me to one I'd never met before. Yeah. Thanks. And thank you everyone who's been listening and we'll talk to you next time.